Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and you have picked a really good week to be here. We are smack in the middle of our sermon series. It's been a really good one, I think, called The Wisdom of Trees. And we got this idea by thinking about and reading these books about all this research that's been done about forests and trees. And obviously, or maybe not obviously if you didn't get the memo, our name, The Grove, comes from a group of fruit-producing trees. That's how we chose the name The Grove. And so we thought about during this birthday season, during this fifth birthday, how can we use all this information out in the world and how can we learn principles that can help us lead to a flourishing life? Because that analogy of trees is one of the most common analogies in the Bible. It's the most common living thing after humans and God is trees. It talks about them a lot, linking it to this nature of spiritual life, of a flourishing life. And in the analogy, most common in the Bible is this idea of bearing fruit, that we are supposed to bear fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, that we are not living up to our purpose. And so this concept has been what we've been kind of talking about over the last four weeks. And if you missed it, I'm going to do a quick tour of all the things that we have learned over these last four weeks when we're thinking about trees and what that means in our spiritual life. So the first one we started off, we started off by saying a flourishing life is purposeful. Trees live on purpose. An apple tree doesn't want to be an orange tree, nor does it want to be a pear tree. Do pears, do, do trees, do pears grow on trees? Yes, they do, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so they don't want to be what they don't want to be. They come with a purpose. It is clear. It is obvious. And in our lives, when we live purposelessly, we allow ourselves to grow wild in ways that we did not intend, in ways that actually hurt or harm not only us, but those around us. And on the second week, we talked about a flourishing life requires rhythm. So trees, they live with rhythms, both seasonally and daily rhythms. And they're on purpose. These rhythms help them maintain their energy, maintain all of the things they need in order to be able to grow. In other words, the rhythms set up the pattern for them to grow. And in our own life, we have to think intentionally about all the things that we're maintaining in our life so that we are able to grow. And then the next week, we talked about a flourishing life cultivates a life-giving story. And we linked this to the research out there that trees are interconnected through their root system, something people call the wood no, the wood wide web? Yes, wood wide web. And it is this series of interconnected roots that share this common story. They are able to communicate with each other, and through that, they create life. They protect each other in a way. And it's the same with us. When we share a common story, whether that's in our families, whether that's in an institution like a church, whether that's in a school or other community group, when we share a common story, we do better. We live better. That's how we find our life-giving story. And then finally, last week, we talked about a flourishing life is a connected life. We talked about this organism out in Utah called Pando that's a single forest of birch trees. But it looks like a million individuals, but what they found out is it's actually interconnected underneath in its roots. And how that is the vision that we want to live into. That our lives as individuals actually don't amount to a whole lot unless they are connected with other people. And that's how trees thrive, and that's how we thrive as well. And then today, what we want to talk about, what I want to talk about, is this concept. A flourishing life requires growth. And you might think, well, duh. 
That feels like the most obvious one on the board, that of course, in order to bear fruit, you have to grow, right? You have to give it all the ingredients and then voila, it grows. And if that was your thought, I want to submit to you evidence A here. How many were with me four weeks ago when I planted this sucker? Up here with one big Sunday, and what did I put in it? I put seeds, and I put good soil, and I watered it, and I left it out in the sun, and what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. There's no growth. And it, I really attribute it to my gardening expertise that are non-existent. But the point is, is that I left that pot thinking, I did all the right things. Like, I put all the right ingredients to make it grow. But what didn't I do, master gardeners out there, the people who talk to their plants? What didn't I do? I didn't fertilize it, and I didn't tend it. And so then I started to learn and look up a little bit more about gardening. And I find these kind of like obvious quotes on here. So this is by Rudyard Kipling, the guy who wrote the Jungle Book. And he said, gardens are not made by singing, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. And I thought, oh, that's a direct insult to me right there. And then this one's from ancient Rome. He says, a master's eye is the best fertilizer. And I thought, oh, God, you're did you know you're actually supposed to, like, tend to plants? Like, growth actually requires us to turn our attention to the plants and, like, take care of it. What a concept. This does not sound revolutionary, but I think that's how a lot of us live, not just with plants, but with our own lives as well, right? We think, well, I had the right ingredients. Surely I can just leave it there and, and let nature take its course and live how I want to do. But if you talk to any orchard grower, any person who like tends to fruit trees, they will tell you that's definitely not the case. You definitely cannot leave a tree to its own devices. Because what happens when you leave a tree to its own devices is that it starts to grow kind of wild and crooked. And over time, it may produce fruit, but it's not the best fruit. And it'll probably stop growing fruit after a few years. It can't survive several seasons. And so orchard trees, in particular, go through a process that we call pruning. So the tree on the left is unpruned, and the tree on the right is an apple tree. The tree on the right is pruned. And orchard growers, every dormant season, go through their trees and start to find, they call them the three Ds, anything that's dead, damaged, or diseased. They go through and they start to cut off the limbs that show any sign of those things. And what's really interesting is that they actually don't just do the things that already show dead, damaged, or diseased, but they look for spots where death or disease or damage might enter in. So any place that the branches are rubbing together, it creates an entry point for disease. And so they start to carve back those branches, to cull them backwards and to prune them effectively. That's how pruning works. And what's really interesting about that pruning image and our analogy is that growth requires vigilance. It requires this sort of tending, a tending that I honestly took for granted, a tending that I think we forget in our own lives. We all know it's important to grow. We watch our kids grow up physically. We think of ourselves as fully grown in our position. But we all think about growth in a different way because there's lots of different types of growth. Like Stephen said when he was talking about life, there are lots of invitations to different types of life. You could have lots of different types of growth in those lives. Financial growth, status, you could work on your health and try to improve your health. 
you could try to grow relationally. But the type of growth that I'm talking about here, the type of growth that I actually think matters, is what I'm going to call spiritual growth. And it's this concept of becoming more like Jesus. In secular terms, we might call it being a good person. It essentially looks like being kind, patient, gentle, these things of fruits of the Spirit in the Bible. That's what growing spiritually gets you, is you develop these virtues that eventually look like Jesus. And we argue here that that is the whole point of the Christian life. But too many of us, when it comes to spiritual growth, look like this pot. We think, okay, I'll go to church every once in a while, so I'll put the soil in. And then maybe I read a devotional or a Bible, so I'm going to add some water in. And then maybe, maybe, I may be, maybe I've been in a small group or a growth group. Look at me. And I'm going to put it out in the sun, and it's going to grow a little bit more. But then what happens is that we become 60, 70 years old, 80 years old, and we look at this pot, and either there's no growth or it's grown a little bit, but it's not bearing the best fruit it could. It's not bearing the fruit that you know you are, have the potential to because of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Why does spiritual growth take such maintenance? And how do we get there? Okay, I'm going to invite you into my little theology corner for a second. Okay, you ready? The reason that we have to tend to our spiritual growth, the reason that we have to be active pruners in that process is because of the concept of sin. And sin gets a bad rap, probably rightfully so. And for a lot of us, it can be a little triggering to hear that word. But I think the best definition of sin that I've heard is this definition of being slightly bent. It's this idea that the human will, the human desire, is just slightly bent to the point where we can't make good decisions on our own. We kind of try this, try that, try that, and nothing really ever works. And if you look at it, you can actually see the work of that decision and that bitterness in your own life. Sometimes it doesn't lead to the most flourishing, and so we live our lives in this bent phase. And that's what the illustration in Genesis 3 is about, that Adam and Eve, humans, made the choice that bent our will. But the Christian story doesn't end there, obviously. Jesus comes and he doesn't heal the actual bitterness, but you know what he does heal? The potential to be upright. He says that the kingdom is here and now and that that kingdom is in each of you. And so that you can live your life not bent, that you can actually conform your life into the image of Jesus and live an upright life. That's where we get the idea of righteous. It means upright. Okay, out of theology corner. You got it? Right? So we actually have the potential to live our lives like Jesus. We actually have the potential to grow into the image of God here on earth. And when we do that, we get access to this thing called the abundant life or the kingdom of God. It's this idea that life is more than what we thought. And it is in that life that we find purpose and meaning and love and relationships and all the things that we spend our lives seeking. That is the purpose of spiritual growth, that we are able to access that kingdom here. 
But how do we do it? How do we go about our lives tending to that spiritual growth? What does it look like past those base ingredients? Because those ingredients are important. But what does it look like to actually tend to our spiritual growth? And to get the answer to that, we're actually going to look at the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is the last gospel. We have four gospels, all tell accounts of Jesus' life. And we use them together to create a picture of what Jesus' teachings look like. In the middle of John's gospel, he preaches this. He says, I am the true vine. So he's saying he, Jesus, is the true vine. He is the plant. And then God, my father, is the gardener. So the first person of the Trinity is doing the gardening. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. The things that are dead and damaged and diseased completely are cut off. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, that's the analogy we were just talking about, that we require pruning so that we can be more fruitful. And then Jesus continues and he says, remain in me as, also, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain on the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So let's talk for a minute about what that word remain is. Because as I'm reading this, if I'm approaching this passage thinking, okay, I know that I want this spiritual growth. How do I do it? And I give you this passage. You're asking the question, okay, how do I understand what I'm supposed to do? There's one word that's repeated a lot of times in this passage. Anyone know what that word is? Remain. Remain. Y'all are so nervous today. Remain. Okay, remain is in that. And in other translations, it's actually translated as a much prettier word, abide, right? Have you heard that? Abide in me. So let's talk about that word for a second because anytime a word is repeated multiple times in the Bible, that means you need to pay attention. That's like an ancient way of noting this is a theme, this is a theme, this is a theme, okay? So remain is a super interesting word because it's used in John a lot, but actually the one place that it's really like emphasized over and over again is in that passage that you know from John 14 that says, in my father's house there are many rooms. That sentence in Greek, has the word abide in it. Because that word, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Rooms, we translate rooms as English, but it actually is better translated as abiding places. Like homes. Like it's this idea of making a cozy home in something. And so that idea of remain in me actually has this imagery of making your home in Jesus of making the choice to abide in Jesus' love, of being there with Jesus and not only receiving his love, but accepting it in your own life. So if I had to tell you what is spiritual growth, what are the steps to making sure that you are not just that pot, the first one is to abide in Jesus. This idea of making your home in Jesus. And for some of you, that has been an event in a life. For some of you, you might call this being saved. For some of you, you might have had a conversion experience. For most of us, it actually wasn't like that. For most of us who are raised in the church or raised with these stories, it was more gradual than that. But there still was a decision somewhere in your life that made you decide that, yes, I want to abide and put all my lots 
with Jesus. And if you haven't made it to that decision, then that's where it starts. Thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to cast all your lots into that corner and to abide with him. And if you've made that choice, if you've moved on from that, then the next question is, okay, then how do I abide with Jesus and continue to grow? And my argument today is that it involves us doing the pruning along with God. You see, what we believe is that in order to heal our bentness, in order to achieve that potential that Jesus gave us the gift of, we need to work alongside the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God inside of us. We need to cooperate with its work in order to achieve, to live in, to be a flourishing life. You can do this passively. I just don't think it'll get you very far. If you just say, hey, I, I understand that there are things in my life that are dead and damaged and diseased, but I don't really know how to solve them, so I'm just going to pray and hope that that works. You can do that. And sometimes, by golly, the Holy Spirit intervenes, and those things come out of your life. And I hope, I hope that that's the path for you. But for most of us, it takes more intentional effort than that. For most of us, it actually is a journey. That's why we call it next steps, because you actually have to take the step. It doesn't just happen magically. And so what I'm going to offer you is a set of four questions, and we're going to go through them. These are questions that have been helpful in my own life. These are questions that are part of a larger tradition of asking questions to recognize sin in our own life and change our patterns. And as I go through them, I want you to just jot them down, whether that's on the bulletin in the notes section or whether that's on your phone. I want you to think about these questions more than just today because they should and they will require a little bit more time. So let's go through them. The first question when you're thinking about how do I identify patterns of sin in my life is what's not working. And it seems simple, and maybe this is where you need to take the most time, but I want you to think about where are you stuck? Where are those places in life that you dread, that you get this like pit in your stomach because you know it's not going to go well? Where do every time you do the thing, whatever the behavior or the relationship is, you're kind of like, ooh, I regret that. What is not working in your life? And it can be in any arena. It can be in work, in family. Often the same pattern shows up in different environments. What's not working in your life? Then the second question is, what are the thought patterns or choices that support your behavior? This might be where therapy or spiritual direction will help because you often need a third party to help you identify all those entrenched thought patterns. Often, when things aren't working, it's because there's a script going on in our head that's helping us relive that habit over and over and over again, right? You can only start to prune and get away from those habits once you know why they're happening. If you do not know why you are yelling at your kids all the time, you got some work to do. You have to answer the why. And that second question is all about the why. Why do you yell at your wife? Why do you always cheat on that like business thing that you're not supposed to cheat at? Why do you uh, cause, like you pull away from relationships really quickly and you knew you weren't supposed to but it just got too deep too quickly? Why do you do those things? Why do you get jealous every time you're on Instagram? Why does that happen? What are the thought patterns in your head? That's the second question, and you might need help to answer those questions. 
third-party, good friend, therapist, spiritual direction that covers the gamut. Third question, what life is God inviting you into? So I'm going to tell you a different version of this question. Often, that why question, why are you doing the things you're doing, it's usually because you're telling yourself a false story, a story that isn't true. So let me give you an example. You are, this guy got this promotion at work, and he kind of sucks. He's terrible. You don't like him. You're really bitter toward him. You, like, every time you enter the office now, you're just, oh, a little bit more angry. It comes out in every meeting, and you're just mad. And so you tell yourself this story over and over and over again about, like, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. This is so unfair. And it just keeps repeating in your head, and then it becomes the story that you live by. But the reality of the situation is, Chances are you don't know the whole reality. But the reality of the situation might look very different. Like you might actually, once you got to know this guy, understand that he's been trying to fight for this promotion for 20 years. And the reason that he got into this company in the first place was because he negotiated this. And when he did, he did it in mind because his marriage is falling apart and this was the only thing he could hold on to. You don't know the reality of the whole situation. And so you're basing your story, your false story, about it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, on incomplete information. You are not basing it on a reality that is real. And so when I ask this question, what life is God inviting you into? The question is, what's on the other side of that false story? What is actually true about what's going on? Is there a life that's available to you where you don't live in resentment? where you don't live in a space of jealousy that occupies so much mental energy that you don't have time for your kids? Is there a different story, a more truer story that God is inviting you into? My guess is with every sinful pattern that I've seen is yes. There is much better life on the side of your sin than where you're standing now. Can you discern what that story is? Can you discern the truth? And if you can't, can you find people who can hold up a mirror and help you see the real story? And then the next one, it's the last one. How do you want to respond? Here's the kicker. A lot of us are actually pretty decent at the top three, right? If we got the key of self-awareness, we're pretty decent at those first three questions. But then where the rubber meets the road is the real problem we have. Because often we take those patterns, those cycles, and we don't feel motivated to make any change. But you have to make change in behavior in order to live into a new story. You have to. And luckily, in the Christian tradition, there's loads of examples of practices and limits that you can set upon your life to help you navigate what that phase of your life is going to look like, what that change in behavior is going to look like. Okay, so let's go back to this guy that you're mad at at work. What would a practice or a limit be that would change that behavior? One, one example, what would it look like if every time you went to work before you got out of the van, whatever car you're driving, you prayed a prayer? You said, God, I'm really dealing with a lot of resentment today. I pray that you release it, that I'm able to walk into this office and be the light that you need me to be. It sounds simple, even corny, but the reality of turning your attention to God every time before you act, interact with this person, it changes things. And it's not just me saying that. There's like thousands of years of history proving 
that disciplines and practices and taking those small steps to doing stuff like that, it helps. It helps over time. And if it's not a practice, is it a limit? Let's say one of your sinful habits or sinful patterns is that you have kind of fallen into this land of not like true, full-out alcohol, drug addiction, but kind of these mini addictions like to a podcast or to a show or something that just feels really good. And now you've gotten to the place where you're like coming home, you like cook dinner, you put the kids to bed, and then you're like, oh, God, thank God I get to go do this. And that's like what you spend most of your time doing. And it's starting to numb you out a little bit, and you're recognizing like this isn't great. This isn't awesome. And you start to do and go through these questions and you start to think, okay, I see the pattern. Why am I doing this? You start to answer that question, whatever that is for you. You start to think about what the fuller life is outside of that. And then maybe the practice or how you respond is a limit. Maybe you limit yourself to, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour. You only watch it on these days, things like this. Limits are helpful in terms of regulating your behavior. This is not a secret. Any psychologist will tell you this. But they're also helpful when it comes to spiritual growth. There's a reason that this idea of responding in the Christian religious world is called discipline. A lot of us are scared of that word. A lot of us are scared because we feel like it's in direct conflict with the word freedom. But the reality is we have abounding freedom. And if we do not limit it, if we do not regulate it, we'll be like an unpruned tree. We'll grow all over the place. Our fruit won't taste great. And then we'll be cut down. That's the reality. We have to instill that discipline in order to grow as we were intended to grow. So this week, that's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about and really take time on these questions. What is one pattern that's really driving me up a wall? That's really stunting my growth? If you can't notice it, guarantee you just go ask someone in your life. They'll notice it for you real quick. What is a pattern that you need to address? With the help of the Holy Spirit, what is the invitation for you on the other side of that pattern? How can you be a better steward of your own spiritual growth than you have been before? How can you take this seriously? How can you live into the reality of what you believe is the Christian story? I believe that we can do this, not because of our own effort, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And I know enough from living with you guys and working with you guys that the Holy Spirit is present in you. And that often what is standing on the other side of you in terms of what it takes for you to grow is a simple step forward. So what will that step be to live into who God created you to be? Okay, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that we have the chance in this life to access uprightness, to live into your image, and to know that that is possible through your work. We pray that we may be cooperative with you, that we may work alongside you, that we may not work against you. We pick up the shears when you call us to pick up the shears, that we may begin our pruning with your power behind us. We are thankful to be your children and thankful to live in the here and now where the kingdom is accessible to us. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.